Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of The Style Files. I'm your host, Paloma Contreras, and joining me today is a very special guest. Dara Caponegro is a force in the world of design and interiors. Dara is currently the creative director of one of the most well-respected fabric houses in the industry, F. Schumacher & Company, where she directs and oversees product development, advertising and marketing, visual merchandising, the website, as well as their beloved bulletin. Dara's presence at the company has seen a total change in the marketing and branding, both of which feel fresh, editorial, and inspiring. Prior to joining Schumacher, Dara held a slew of illustrious positions as a magazine editor. She was the editor-in-chief at Veranda, and prior to that, she was the founding editor at the original Domino and held several senior editorial posts at House Beautiful and Al Decor. In addition, she's also an author, and her most recent book, The Authentics, was released in collaboration with Melanie Acevedo in 2018. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dara. We're so excited to have you. surviving okay I am how are you doing I'm fine I mean I go through phases probably like everybody else you know um some days I'm perfectly content and other days I want to jump out of my skin (laughs) yes it's funny you should say that I, I feel like I finally really hit a wall last weekend I tried my best to really stay positive and find the silver linings and all of that and keep myself busy and then for some reason last weekend I just I got to a point where I was uncomfortable in my own skin. I just felt physically restless and so helpless because you keep hearing these terrible headlines and there's really nothing we can do except stay home and there's just no end in sight. I know. I know. It's so it's such a sad situation. Um, I have a, when my best friend from growing up has it, as does her 90-year-old mother who lives with her and her husband and every... Oh few days I bring them food and I leave it on their doorstep I mean I'm happy to do that but it's like it's not enough yeah it's just you do feel helpless and it seems like New York is really the epicenter in the U.S. How, how what are things like there right now well you know I live in a neighborhood in the Bronx that's um it's feels like it doesn't feel like a city you know I it's all private houses and they're very far away from one another it feels more like a suburb than the city mm-hmm. And I haven't been to Manhattan for about five weeks because my husband had lunch with somebody who wound up having the virus. And so we were self-quarantining before the shelter in place um, was put into effect. And so, I mean, I've been home now almost five weeks. I mean, luckily he hasn't gotten sick. No, one, None of us have gotten sick. Good. Um, yeah. So I don't have like a great pulse on what Manhattan is like. Yeah, I'm hearing different things from different friends. And the general consensus seems to be that it's just sort of eerily quiet. Mm -hmm. I know. I mean, there are things that I miss that I never would have thought in a million years that I'd be missing, you know, like our neighborhood (laughs) at the (laughs) office. It's just, you know, it's not the sexiest neighborhood on earth. Um, It's right by um, Herald Square Um, I mean, our offices are great, but the neighborhood itself is probably the last neighborhood in New York City that's gotten gentrified. Um, And, you know, there are things that I miss or going to Pret-a-Manger every day. I mean, I was so sick of the food there, but all of a sudden it seems appealing again. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it funny how that works? Yeah, for sure. Well, 
speaking of the office, you have an extensive and impressive background in the editorial world and um, were a founding editor at the original Domino. You've held posts at House Beautiful and El Decor. And right before joining Schumacher as creative director, you were editor in chief at Veranda. Can you tell us a bit about your creative journey and how you wound up where you are today? Sure. So my mom was a decorator and um, I had been going to the D&D building since I was four years old. I was a really good student and she would go to, into the city once a week. I, I grew up about an hour outside the city and she would say, I'm going to the D&D building. Do you want to come? And so I, you know, it's one of my earliest memories, actually. And back then, I, I, I'm a big animal lover. And back then, all the showrooms had dogs. And I remember playing with the dogs and collecting all the pencils because they all had interesting pencils, interesting design <laughs> pencils. And then, you know, I would take her samples and I would use them to decorate my dollhouse. So um, in some ways, it makes perfect sense that I do what I do. Um, but I also have a real penchant for science. And my dad was a doctor. And um, so in college, I was uh, an English major, but I had minors in biology and art history. And I really toyed with the idea of either going to vet school or going to um, or doing something in magazines. And so when I was in college, I interned at the Cooper Hewitt Museum. And then when I graduated, I worked at the Bronx Zoo um, out of the children's zoo department at where I handled exotic animals. So I handled snakes and alligators and monitor lizards and um, <laughs> oh, cool. I got, yeah, it was really fun. I learned a lot, um, but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, I did it for about eight months. And one of the reasons I didn't want to do it was because animals had become a, you know, they became a commodity, you know, like mm -hmm. you became your relationship with them. And maybe it's because it was the zoo and I wasn't working at a regular vet's office. I don't know. But um, my relationship with animals changed. And I also hated the outfit that I had to wear and I, <laughs> and I was really tired of being dirty every day. So anyway, I knocked on the door of the uh, director of the Cooper Hewitt, who I had worked with um, when I interned and she offered me a full-time job as her assistant. And then eventually I made my way to House Beautiful and I got the job at House Beautiful because my two bosses or my two soon to be bosses were so impressed that I worked at the Bronx Zoo. And they said, if you can work at the Bronx Zoo and handle snakes and alligators, you can, you know, be up for the job at House Beautiful. Because back then we did a lot of very physical labor where we would install huge rooms, photograph them, and then deinstall them. Um, so there was a lot of packing and unpacking. And they knew that I wasn't afraid of getting my hands dirty, literally. Mm -hmm. And so I was offered the job. And, um, you know, it, it was, it's been an, it was an unbelievable ride. I mean, I really, I feel very fortunate. Um, so I was at House Beautiful for 14 years and then I went to El Decor and then I went to Domino. And then when Domino folded during the last recession, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to, and maybe, you know, just be a mom and get my life together. And then I got a call from Hearst about Veranda and it was funny because I never thought I was going to get the job, really. And lo and behold, they offered me the job. And, and that was a wonderful run also. That, well, yes, I remember those years that you were at Veranda. The magazine it still is so beautiful, but you did an incredible job with it. And then, of course, the original Domino, that was so much more than just a publication. It was more than a magazine. It really was 
this sort of cultural moment and it, you guys really advocated for a lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, I always say it was all about, you know, it was the best people at the best place at the best time. You know, I mean, it was just like this wonderful um, time where it all just worked. And I, you know, my relationships with the editors from back then, it's, it was almost like being in the army together, you know, like those relationships go so deep, even though I don't see everybody that often, you know, when I do see them, it just feels like I saw them yesterday. So it was fun because I, I really do feel like um, it was smart and it was interesting and it empowered people. And Deborah Needleman was an amazing leader and she was so good at getting good people, you know, and inspiring the people who worked for her. So I don't know. I feel really fortunate to have had that experience. I mean, we worked our tails off. I have to admit when she called me to tell me that Domino had folded, I breathed a sigh of relief because it was really a lot. You know, I mean, I was working every weekend. I was working at night till nine o'clock. It was an intense job, but I loved it. Sure. Yeah, I can imagine. I still have all of my copies of the original Domino and quite a few original House and Gardens, and I treasure them. And in fact, I haven't gotten around to it yet, but I've resolved that during this time at home, I need to spend some time digging into those old old magazines and deriving some inspiration from them. Yeah. So then how has the editorial experience that you have, because you are such a talented editor and that I think it really comes through in your work at Schumacher. How does that translate for you? How does it influence the work that you're doing as you oversee product development, advertising, marketing, visual merchandising, as well as the website and now the bulletin. Right. So I can't take credit anymore for the website. So our CEO, Timur Yuma Sockler, has really made that his baby. So I'm the style filter for the website. Um, I can, you know, say that I do that, but he's really the one who's been making it such a smart, user-friendly um, experience. But um, in terms of um, my editorial skills um, translating to my current job, so... It was a pretty seamless transition, I have to say. I mean, I think good magazine editors are really good at predicting trends, and that's really come in handy when we're developing collections. So I do have a knack for sort of predicting what's coming next, and I really listen to my gut. Um, I mean, that's one of my biggest learning lessons in life. At any time I haven't listened to my gut, I've always um, regretted it. Um, so, you know, putting together collections um, is very much like putting together a magazine, you know, and thinking about like, what are people yearning for? And, um, what am I yearning for? And, um, one of my great, um, one of the great highlights of being at Veranda was, um, at one point we did a story and we were so excited about it and we got it in, you know, um, I think it was the October issue. And then Harper's Bazaar, which is a fashion magazine, did the same story in their November issue. And I remember feeling so good, you know, having beat them to the punch because <laughs> um, fashion magazines or fashion is always thought of as, you know, kind of being the style leader. And so, um, you know, I felt like here home was informing fashion, which was really exciting. So, um, this is a long story. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. It's great. It's so interesting to hear. Um, but anyway, and then working on designer collections has been a lot like, you know, working on designers to produce photo shoots. I mean, you know, there's this great um, 
dialogue that happens. And I think, you know, um, that was something that I was really used to. And then the other thing that really comes in handy, so with the marketing, I mean, we have so many different kinds of content. We have our newsletter and we have our blog and we have our Instagram. Um, and then of course we have the bulletin, which is our magazine that we produce twice a year. Um, so all of my editorial skills come in handy for that. In fact, I just spent the morning reading over the newest issue of the bulletin. I, I had it along with my coffee and just read it from cover to cover. It's so beautiful and it's no easy feat to merge marketing and editorial in such a seamless way, because at the end of the day, the purpose of the bulletin and all of this other clever marketing that you guys are producing is truly to promote Schumacher and the product that you have available for the marketplace, but you do it in a way that feels so organic. And I, even though I know that the product is at the forefront of the different stories within the bulletin, I don't feel like you're talking at me or really pushing product in an aggressive way. How do you achieve that balance? Because it's not easy. Well, we made, we made a conscious decision um, when we were doing the bulletin not to make it too salesy. So we really want to just promote beautiful design and we want to serve the community um, by, by, you know, giving them beautiful design. So one of the biggest secrets is that the projects that we show, you know, the house projects, a lot of them don't have Schumacher. So it's not about promoting Schumacher so heavily. So if we do a product story on fabrics and wall coverings, yes, of course, there's going to be Schumacher in there, but that's not the ultimate goal of the, of the magazine. It's really about getting people excited about design, making them, um, you know, one of the things I love about the bulletin is that we kind of just do whatever we're excited about. We're not stuck into any kind of format the way um, any other magazine is. You know, every other magazine I've worked at, there, there are certain stories that, you know, you have to follow every single month. So at the bulletin, we really follow our passions. And I think there are a lot of surprises. And, you know, we just want to engage people and surprise them and make them excited about design and um, so I just do want to put in a plug, you know, think of us when you have gorgeous projects that you, you want to get published because they don't all have to have Schumacher. I mean, sure, it's nice, but it's not a necessity. That's so great. Do you have a favorite story in the current issue? Um, I really love so many of them. I mean, I love Stephen Sills garden. It's mm. so incredible. You know, I'd be happy to just transplant myself there right now. Um, there's that Miles Red house in LA that I think is really cool. And one of the stories that I think is the biggest surprise is that we did a travel story. Well, it's sort of a travel slash architecture story on rest stops in Norway. Um, and they're all designed by different architects and they really, um, they respect the, land, the landscape, which is incredible, but they also, um, you know, they're, they, they respect it, but they're also, you know, very much a presence on their own. And I happen to love architecture. I think it's um, something that American magazines don't um, cover enough. I think it's mm -hmm. so important. Um, so I, I love that story, too. Well, speaking of magazines and landscape, what do you think is next for the publishing space? What How will um, shelter magazines continue to evolve or not evolve evolve as uh, as the landscape changes and the way that people interact with different forms of media changes. 
Well, I think there's always a place for print. And I actually think that um, the coronavirus is going to be a lucky break for them because what I hope will happen, I mean, I know what's happening already is they're condensing the number of issues that they're doing. So, you know, they're not having like a June and a July and an August issue, but they're having one issue. So I hope that they'll be able to focus on quality and, um, and I think, you know, it's the perfect opportunity. So I don't think print will ever go away. I think there's a, there's a place for it. I mean, there's, it's a different experience. I mean, digital is great, but you know, it's just like email. It's like, there are certain emails that I can read on my screen and then certain emails I have to print to kind of see them in a different way. I think carriers yes. are like that also. You know, I mean, it doesn't mean that one thing is going to go away. I, I, I actually think it's a great opportunity for magazines to to do what they do better. I agree with you. And I, I certainly hope that they never go away. I, for one, love the tactile nature of having an actual print magazine in my hand. And as a matter of fact, Tori Malott from your team posted mm-hmm. me for your um your little live segment recently I know all at home sheltering in place and she asked what I was reading and she was so surprised when I actually pulled out a paperback book to show the viewers because I I still read books and she was like oh you don't read on a tablet when it comes to books and magazines and even a calendar I keep um, a, a sort of like leather bound calendar and I also make notes for myself every single day. I write out a tangible to-do list on a piece mm-hmm. of paper that mm-hmm. lives on my desk until the next day. Yeah. And you just, there's just not a substitute for that. Yeah. In my opinion. Well, it's funny because at the creative de- department in Schumacher, at Schumacher, everything is, you know, all of our desks are brimming with things like printed material and fabrics. And, you know, it's a very physical, tangible mind. And, um, and then there are other departments where they have nothing on their desk, but I think creativity and tangible, um, you know, paper and materials go hand in hand. Like I just think they do. Absolutely. Have you found in the time since you've been at Schumacher that the way designers and members of the trade interact with the brand and the product has changed and has seen what designers are buying influence your editorial? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that attracted me to um, Schumacher, it was very similar to what attracted me to um, Veranda. You know, it had this incredible DNA, but it had sort of, um, it needed a facelift. So um, Schumacher, you know, it was a little tired, I mean, frankly, and designers would say to me that they thought it was tired. Um, So I think, yes, it's changed, you know, it's turned it's completely changed. It's an about face. People are looking to us for, you know, ideas for, for product and for how to design and um, all kinds of things. I mean, I get love letters almost every day from people. That's amazing. Yeah. It's really, it's really exciting. Well, I have to say Schumacher really is one of my go-to fabric houses. And I'm not saying that only because I'm having this conversation with you specifically, but it truly, truly is. We use a lot of Schumacher in our office. And I think in recent years, you guys have done such an incredible job of turning out new product that is either really unique in the marketplace or really, really usable, like your performance velvets and performance linens and things like that, where I know that I can find a place for it in any project in any colorway because you have, you know, 75 for each 
each type of fabric. So you, you do a really wonderful job in, in listening to what the marketplace needs. Well, I really appreciate that. I mean, I, 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 you know, I appreciate so much your support and everyone else's support and the fact that they've been open to, you know, looking at us again. You know, a lot of people thought we were a granny brand. I mean, of course, that's not such a bad thing right now that granny chic is back <laughs> in. But, um, you know, people have been really open and receptive, and I appreciate that. That's very true. Well, speaking of that, the design space has become rather crowded with licensed collections over the past several years. And it seems that everybody wants to get into licensing, not fully understanding what it really takes and what one truly gets out of it. What should a designer understand about what it takes to bring a licensed collection to life? And what do you look for specifically when making decisions about who Schumacher should partner with? Um, so I have to be honest, you know, we love our roster of interior designer collections, but we aren't taking too many new ones on. And one of the reasons is that we became associated just with designer collections. You know, when I arrived, I think the first year we, we did like 15 designer collections and Schumacher as a brand had kind of lost its way. And, you know, we're a brand that was founded in 1889 and we have our, we had our own DNA. So, mm -hmm. um, we love our license lines. Um, but our designer lines, we more or less stick to the ones that we have. So there's, um, not, too much room to add new ones. Um, but in general, like if I were going to add a new one, I would say, obviously someone needs to have a big following. Um, they need to have a point of view that we can't necessarily express on our own. You know, I mean, one of the great things about the license collections is they allow you to expand your horizons, you know what I mean? And maybe not do something that the brand would normally do. Right. Um, so those are the two biggest things I would say. And then the other thing that we do is like, we really expect people to come in with ideas instead of having us generate the ideas for them. You know, we're no right. longer, I, I think there was a time where, I mean, it's been a very long time, but there was a time when Schumacher needed the names, right? And now we're just interested in partnering with people who have great ideas, who can really, um, you know, who, who are, creating them on their own and instead of like, it's not like we're borrowing the names anymore, I guess sure. is what I would say. And everyone that we have on board, you know, is just a genius. There are people who can really, um, who have great ideas, who, who bring great things to the table. I've been introduced to so many artists and artisans through the collaborations that you've launched, people that weren't necessarily household names, but that are doing really interesting things and have a very uh, unique, singular point of view. Yes. So we have a program. It's the unofficial name is um, Artists and Artisans. We still haven't figured out what to name it, <laughs> but um, we do try to partner with people who are doing really interesting things that are not necessarily interior designers, but are artists and artisans. And that's been a really fun um, program. So we just introduced Molly. Her last name is spelled M-A-H-O-N, but it's pronounced Marn. Her, mm. her beautiful um, hand-blocked uh, fabrics, and she's about to do, we're about to bring out wallpapers too. We have a rum fellow out of England who produces these incredible wovens out of Guatemala. We have Stephanie Seal Brown, who does the most um, kind of Bauhaus-y tapes. I mean, it's a great, Caroline Hurley, 
who does beautiful hand blocks and, and other patterns too. It's been really fun. It's been great to see all these points of view and be able to incorporate them into Schumacher. Absolutely. And it really makes you stand out, I think, in the marketplace because you are doing things that are really sort of on the forefront of creativity. There's no one else doing the things that these particular artists and artisans are doing. And to be able to feel like something is a true discovery is a coup nowadays, because I do think we all get a little bit jaded. We're so used to having a constant stream of information and inspiration, whether it's through Instagram or Pinterest, magazines or books, going to places like High Point Market. You're sort of inundated with product all the time. And I have found over the years, I personally have felt a little bit jaded because it takes so much more work to find a new exciting discovery nowadays. So thank you for looking outside the box, if you will, and, and turning to artists and artisans that we may not have known about and that were under the radar and doing such interesting things with them. Well, that's the biggest compliment ever. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so Dara, do you also oversee any part of the sister brands, Patterson Flynn Martin with rugs and Excel with wall coverings? So Excel is part of the Schumacher brand. So, um, you know, I help on the marketing with that. And then for PFM, I oversee the designer collections that we do, and I also oversee all the marketing. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm very excited to be working with both, well, all three, Excel, Schumacher, and Patterson Flynn Martin um, for the Lake Forest Infant Welfare Show House, which is set to open sometime this year. It was meant to open next week, actually, in Lake Forest, Illinois, and you all were so generous to, to work with me on fabrics and wallpaper and a beautiful rug. Um, and it's been postponed indefinitely in light of what's going on, but I look forward to when we can open and share everything because it's really beautiful and it's thanks greatly in part to, to you and your support. Well, we thank you. I mean, well, first of all, we love, we love um, helping designers, especially with things like show houses and things, but you, you know, it's nice to see things in capable, in capable hands. So thank you. You know, we look forward to seeing what you're doing. Thank you. Well, another facet of the business, which I think is really interesting, is that under your direction, Schumacher has now ventured into licensed brand collaborations, most recently with Matuk, who just introduced a beautiful line of bedding, and with Williams-Sonoma Home, with whom you've just done a second collection of decorative accessories and tabletop. Why did you feel that it was important to pursue this avenue of the business? And can you tell us about the process? Sure. So the Williams-Sonoma thing, um, you know, they out of the blue, they just called us and asked us, asked us if we were interested. And we thought it would be such a fun way to get our product out, you know, to a broader audience. Um, there are so many people who love Schumacher, but they can't get their hands on it because we're just to the trade. So it was a nice way to be able to, you know, feature some of our patterns on, on tabletop and things like that. So we were really excited about that collaboration. And then the Matuk thing happened, um, Timor, our CEO and George Matuk met recent, not recently, I guess about a year and a half ago now at an, at an industry event and they just kind of hit it off. And um, Matuk is a family owned business too. And it was funny because Mindy, George kept saying, well, Mindy really meets, wants to meet Dara. Mindy's the creative director and George's wife. And, um, and we couldn't meet, you know, I think my dad got sick. He's fine now, but he got sick and was in the hospital. And anyway, the whole thing kind of, um, 
went forward and we hadn't met except for the, the day that we were going to work on the first collection. And we both showed up wearing the same earrings and we were like, okay, this is going to be great. <laughs> we're getting, we see, we see the world the same way. We both have the same Ted Mewling um, hoops on and we just completely hit it off. I mean, it's been such a seamless, wonderful working partnership. And I'm so proud of what we've done um, with the Matuk bedding and towels. And we have a new collection coming out in September that I'm really excited about more bath towels than beach towels. And then there'll be another one next year. So I think it's going to be a pretty, um, uh, you know, a pretty, you're going to, you can expect to see at least three collections from us. Um, and it's just been a wonderful working partnership. That's amazing. And for those listening, can they purchase the Schumacher for Matuk collection anywhere that Matuk is currently sold? Yeah. So um, if you're a decorator, you can go to fschumacher.com and purchase it. Or you can go to, if you're not a decorator or if you're a decorator, you can go to matuk.com. I mean, they're also sold at Bloomingdale's and a bunch of retailers, but because of our current situation, that's a little bit difficult. But um, obviously you can, you can buy them online. That's great. How exciting. Yeah. So what else is inspiring you in the design world right now? Well, I'm like you. I've really been turning to my books. It's interesting because we're working on a Schumacher book. It's just, it's actually almost about to be completely final with Rizzoli. It's called S is for Style and it comes out in September And it's a book that's divided into style chapters. So, you know, one, for example, is preppy. Another one is laid back. Another one is high style. Another one is exuberant. So it's kind of all these different moods. And we have um, lots of beautiful room images and lots of beautiful product. And at the end of each chapter is a group of um, historic rooms that sort of speak to that style. So... I had the best time going through some of my old books and seeing again, almost like seeing for the first time, some of these great rooms. So, I mean, some of the books that I love are like house and gardens, best of decoration. Um, There's a book that I refer to constantly called um, Norma. It's by Norma Skirka, who is a New York times editor and it's called the New York times book of interior design. So that's from the seventies, I think maybe the early eighties. I mean, obviously, I love Albert Hadley's books. Um, I don't know. That's that's where I've been finding my inspiration most. That's amazing. Well, your book sounds like it's going to be beautiful and so inspiring. When will that be available for pre-order? Well, it should be. I mean, it's actually available on Amazon right now for pre-order. And then we're going to be selling um, signed copies because we don't know what's going to happen with book signings and stuff. So we're going to be selling signed copies very soon, probably in the next two to three weeks. Um, So we'll start promoting that pretty soon. Fantastic. Yeah. Something to look forward to. I think so. I mean, I'm really proud of it. Every time I look at it, I worked really closely with our art director, Stephanie Diaz. And every time I look at it, I'm like, I think this is pretty good. You know, I really think this is good. There's nothing in it that I'm like, oh, I wish we hadn't run that or I feel good about it. And I I think it's a really nice, um, it's a great book for designers because I really think it shows the best of the best of Schumacher. It almost like um, 
you know, so from that perspective, it's great for them. I think it's a great tool for them, for their clients, like to help identify who they are as in terms of their style. And I think it's a great book for consumers because, you know, it's hard to kind of like navigate who you are and decorating is so expensive that it's good to have a good handle on who you are, you know, what you like and before you dive in. Sure. I do hear that a lot from people who aren't professional designers, but more design enthusiasts or even from clients when we're starting out initially on a project, a lot of times they feel overwhelmed because they're drawn to so many different things and like spaces and uh, items, pieces that are sort of very different and are classified as different styles and they don't really know how to bring that together into what they would call their own style. How do you define your style and what advice do you do you have for anyone who's struggling to really define what their true style is? <laughs> That's a tough one, but it's not that <laughs> tough, actually. You know, when I worked on the Domino book, we, the first chapter was really about, um, you know, kind of, I mean, I it was ways to find your style. So, I mean, I think the first thing you have to do is like start a Pinterest board or pull tear sheets or, you know, like start big and live with stuff for a while, you know, like look at it and then look at it again three months later and think, is this really who I am and what I want to be? And then another thing that I think is key is photograph all of your stuff and kind of take it out of its context and say, do I love this? Don't I love this? Um, and kind of, you know, think about giving things to goodwill or, or whatever. I mean, I, I, I'm a huge editor, you know, both in my professional life and my personal life. So I, I believe in, in cleansing, you know, like cleansing your house. I have a rule that, especially with my clothes for every one thing that comes in, something has to go out. So, um, I'm a big believer in editing. That's such great advice. And you really do have to be a fierce editor. You know, I think you can start with this grouping of things that you're drawn to, whether it's images or, or actual pieces of furniture in your house. And then, like you said, sort of sit with it for a while, meditate on it, think about what brings you joy and what doesn't. And you kind of have to just go with your gut and be really instinctual. And if you have to sort of mull over whether you like it or not, I think the answer tr typically should be no. It, you should act. That's right. <laughs> you know, you either love it or you don't. And if it's not an immediate yes, then it needs to go. And you have to be a fierce editor in order to get down to the core essence of what that visual DNA really is. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, in my lifetime, there are I mean, there are, I think there are two things that I've given away that I've regretted, but mostly I'm never looked back. What were they? One was, a, I mean, it's going to sound crazy, but it was a lemon yellow kind of neoprene suit by Calvin Klein that I bought in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and not that I would ever wear it again, but it was so incredible that I am kind of sad that I don't have it anymore. Um, that's probably the only thing that really comes up. You know, it was, a, yeah. it was a skirt and a jacket and it was really out there and chic. But again, you know, I, I would never wear it again. So what do I care in a way? <laughs> <laughs> what are your indispensable design elements? Well, I'm an object person, so I don't really have design elements per se, but I love objects, you know, and I love objects that have have the 
the let's show the hand of the maker. You know, that could be something that's really old or that could be something that's um, newer. It doesn't matter. But I, I kind of believe that objects have souls, like not in a corny sense, but like I feel like we have to respect objects because somebody gave them great thought and gave them, you know, took the time to make them and think about them. And one of the things that I do at Schumacher is I buy antiques for the showroom. And it's one of my favorite things because you really learn so much about history and you learn, I don't know, it's almost like you're the caretaker of these things that you can then pass on to the next person to take care of. So um, I, I suppose I love a mix. You know, I love antique things. I love modern things. But I, I love things that are, are, you know, have soul. I couldn't agree more. And that's so true about antiques and vintage. These objects come to us and they've already lived a life, if not multiple lives of their own. And sometimes I wonder, you know, where did this this piece originally live and what was that house like? And it's kind of cool to then be the caretaker in the end. And it's also such a sustainable way to furnish a home. But it's also a responsibility. You know, my, my family is sometimes not that careful and, I, you know, things break. I, I, I put things in perspective. It's not like I freak out, but mm-hmm. I try to impress upon them, you know, that, that somebody cared about this thing. You know, it's our job to take care of them. Absolutely. Is there anything that people might be surprised to learn about you? Um, well, I'm really very shy. Sometimes I come off as aloof, but I think it's just because I'm shy. Um, what else? I have, I'm good at doing accents. <laughs> oh, that's a fun, a fun skill. Yeah, I won't do one today, but I, 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 I enjoy doing that. <laughs> and I'm really kind of goofy. Well, that's fun. Yeah, I feel like I'm sort of, I'm sort of that way too. And people often think that I'm more serious on the surface and I am and I tend to be more of an introvert but once people get to know me and I suspect that you're similar in the way that you've described that once people really get to know you the layers sort of come apart and they realize like you have a great sense of humor and um, can be goofy and you know aren't quite as serious and buttoned up all the time yeah I hope so (laughs) (laughs) what is your your best accent you don't have to do it, but just I do tell a us great mobster accent. Oh, um, and I I kind of do it. I do a fun Indian accent and a Swedish one too. <laughs> so then, do you speak? Do you speak other languages? Do you have an ear? Not for really? That? No. I mean, I speak a little French and I speak a little Italian, but I can't say I'm fluent. Yeah. So once we're able to travel again, is there a place you'd most like to go? You know, it's really interesting because last year, last summer. I, we toyed with the idea of going away, you know, to somewhere exotic. And I'm one of those people who reacts to things, you know, like when the second something becomes really popular, I kind of turn the other, I go the other direction. So everybody had been talking about all these exotic trips that they were taking. And I was like, you know, I'm going to stay stateside. And we had done a story in the bulletin on Northern Michigan And so I did that trip to Northern Michigan and it was so wonderful. It was just like exactly what I needed. It was beautiful and the food was great and the people were nice and it wasn't pretentious. And I don't know. I, so I think I might this year, if we are able to go away, I might do another, um, 
another United States vacation. Amazing. Yeah. Is that the, the upper peninsula of Michigan that you're referring yes. to? Yes. So yeah. we, we did, um, we started in Traverse City or Traverse City, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. And um, then we went to Balloon Lake and then we ended on Mackinac Island, which is, you know, a total time warp and <laughs> kind of amazing corny but like in the best way possible i don't know i i was really into it that's so nice and i'm sure it was such a welcome change from your usual life in the city and the hustle and bustle to just go back to some place where life was a little bit simpler yeah and it was just beautiful i mean it was really um i don't know there was something really sweet about it it's like i want to retire here it was nice although someone said that it um the winter before it was 40, 40 degrees below zero. And I was like, well, maybe not. <laughs> oh, gosh, no. So only for the summers. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Um, where do you turn for inspiration outside of, of books? And is there anything currently you mentioned not not following the crowd? And when things become popular, you, you, you tend to dislike them at that point. Is there anything sort of happening right now in the design space that's rather popular in the cultural zeitgeist that you're not a fan of? Oh, that's a hard question, Paloma. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, Listen, the thing is, is that I, I don't want to be judgmental. You know what I mean? Sure. Sort of like I am who I am for myself. I mean, I just know how I operate. So if people are excited about things, they should stay excited about them. You know, who am I to say, oh, you know, that's passe or whatever. Um, so I, I, I don't really think so. I mean, I think okay. ultimately if people are excited about it and it makes them happy, that's the most important thing. I think that's the most important rule, if you will, in design is really to surround yourself with the things that you love and not worry about whether it's popular or on trend or passe, because if you love it and you're the one living with it, that's all that truly matters. I think that's really true. You know, I grew up um, in the, so, you know, my, I, I suppose the design aesthetic that, that influenced me the most was the seventies. Right. Mm -hmm. And then and this, and, and then the eighties came. And if you didn't have like a super traditional house, you know, that was full of chintz and antiques and whatever, you know, you were just so out of vogue. Like there was a time when you had to decorate to the times. And one of the things that I love about the time that we live in right now is that you don't, it's really about personal expression and it's about what you like. It's exactly what you said. So you don't have to feel confined by a look. I mean, it's true with fashion too. It's, it's very liberating. Absolutely. Who are some of your style icons? Well, it was fun to see, you know, to do the book. Um, because again, I was going through all my old books and, and, uh, one of the, one of the people who I always admired, but I admired even more was Frances Elkins. Mm -hmm. So she was so ahead of her time. It's kind of mind boggling. And when I look at her book, it's interesting to see because you can see how she influenced Albert Hadley, for example. Um, so she really stood out to me. Um, I love Bill Blass. I think he was a genius. You know, I love what he did in his city house and his country house. To me, that was one of the best houses ever. Yes. Classic um, American. Yeah. 
I love Jeffrey Bean. I think that he was um, a great American fashion designer and I had the good fortune to photograph um, his house. Well, actually both of his houses. He had one on Long Island and one in Hawaii. Um, and he was such a gentleman. So I think both from a, from a professional level, but also a personal level. I mean, I remember going in there and sometimes when you're doing a shoot, you know, you need to move the furniture around and whatever. And he let me have carte blanche and he just stood back and he watched and he was, he said to me afterward, you know, I just loved watching how hard you worked to get the shot you wanted. And I thought that was so nice. I mean, he was just a lovely man um, who is a genius and so ahead of his time. I love some of his like really minimal sculptural um, uh, fashion items. So I think that's a good list. Absolutely. That's a great list. So many iconic people who have contributed to the definition of what classic American style is today. And Frances Elkins, you're absolutely right. She is among my favorites and someone whose work I often go back to um, in a, a few different books that I have either on her or she and her brother, David Adler. And the way that she composed these rooms and sort of the lack of, of color and pattern feels so fresh and modern and could, could really be current. It speaks to the timelessness of what she did. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you could go back in time, is there a piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? I think so. I mean, one is not to worry so much. And another is, you know, there are no mistakes. Like one of my biggest life lessons is just to make a decision, you know, be decisive. And you can, even if it's maybe not the right decision, you can make it the right decision. Like, I really believe that. I think that we have the power in us. It's not like everything is like set in stone. So, you know, you try something and then if it doesn't totally work, you try something else. But I do believe that even bad mistakes can become good decisions. Absolutely. And sometimes it takes time to realize that in the moment, because when you have a failure or you make a mistake, it can often feel devastating. And it can take years to recover from that in some cases and to really sit with it and feel at peace with what that was. And then to realize that because that didn't work out, something else came along that was yeah. a better fit for you. You know, you don't always get that clarity instantly. It can take some time, but that's a wonderful lesson to think about and, and to keep in mind. We're recording this conversation in the midst of staying home during coronavirus, as you know. What has this experience taught you? Have you found a silver lining? Tolerance. <laughs> <laughs> We've, my family and I, no, I mean, it's not, I mean, we're doing fine. Well, we have moments of really, like, yeah. we have mo moments of like real beauty and then moments of absolute hideousness i'm sure i'm not like anybody unlike anybody else right um but one of the things that's been um so my daughter's 26 and she's living at home and my son is uh 17 and so he's home with us and you know we're all getting in each other's way and i'm complaining because you know i'm doing all the laundry and most of the cooking although my daughter's helped a little bit um, but I think one of the nicest things is, is as a working mother, you know, my hours have been pretty long and having like a family dinner is not really something that's been core to my kids upbringing. And we've been having dinner together every night. And that has been, even if we're fighting sometimes 
I would say it's 50, 50. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's been incredibly nice and it's nice to cook for them too. You know, I, I actually really love to cook and I don't have that opportunity that often, um, just because I'm so busy. So there's a, a wonderful routine and a wonderful sense of, you know, being able to care for them that I don't, you know, we haven't had before. I'm curious to see how the sort of change in rhythm that we're all experiencing, like you just mentioned, normally you're working long hours, you don't have time to cook a big meal or anything like that when you get home and everybody's tired and the kids have activities and whatnot. I do wonder, as we've all had this sort of I hate to call it a gift because it's a gift for some, but it's been so terribly devastating for so many. But in some ways, this extra time at home does feel like a gift for those of us that are lucky enough to be safely tucked away in our houses. Do you think that people will take some of what what they've learned and the way that they've shifted their use of time during this moment into the future? Do you you foresee that people will maybe scale back on how much they focus on work and professional life or things outside of the home and outside of their core family? Well, I think they'll certainly put things in perspective. And I think one of the things that'll be, um, that'll definitely come out of this is that people will use technology more. And so maybe they won't have to commute and they'll be able to spend that time with their families instead. Mm -hmm. So um, I do think so. I mean, I think perspective is key and um, you do realize what's really important to you. And um, so, yeah, I think so. Most definitely. So Dara, we'll end on um, one last question. What is currently giving you hope? I think the kindness of people, um, appreciation, you know, um, the, the, I mean, our teams at Schumacher and PFM have just been incredible. I mean, they're just like, we're still working. We're still, everybody's been, you know, rising to the occasion. I mean, I think it's really made people the best they can be. And that's been giving me hope. That's incredible. Well, Dara, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really enlightening and so inspiring to hear you talk about your career and the wonderful things that you're doing at Schumacher. I hope to be able to see you soon once all of this is behind us, and I hope that you'll stay healthy and well. Thank you, Paloma. The same to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye, Dara. Bye, Paloma. That was the creative director of Schumacher, Dara Caponegro. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to visit us online at thestylefilespodcast.com where you can find more episodes featuring inspiring conversations with creatives. You can listen directly on our website or subscribe via Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying The Style Files, please consider leaving us a positive review. It will only take a few seconds of your time and will make a huge difference for us. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.